Section 1 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 4. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Leibrie. Section 1. A piece of a hundred sous. A young and a handsome couple had just returned from the altar where their destinies were irrevocably united. They were about to start for the country and they had bidden a temporary farewell to the friends who were present at the ceremony. For a short time, while the equipage was preparing, they found themselves alone. The newly wedded husband took one of his bride's hands in his own. Allow me, my dear Marie, said he, thus to hold your hand, for dread lest you should quit me. I dread lest all this be an illusion. It seems to me that I am the hero of one of those fairy tales which amused my boyhood and in which, in the hour of happiness, some malignant fairy steps in to throw the victim into grief and despair. Reassure yourself, my dear Frederic, said the lady. I was yesterday the widow of Sir James Melton, and today I am Madame de la Tour, your wife, your own Marie. Banish from your mind the idea of the fairy. This is not a fiction, but a history. Frédéric de la Tour had some reason to suppose that his fortunes were the work of a fairy's wand, for in the course of two short months, by a seemingly inexplicable stroke of fortune, he had been raised to happiness and to wealth beyond desires. A friendless orphan, twenty-five years old, he had been the holder of a clerkship, which brought him a scanty livelihood, when one day, as he passed along the Rue Saint-Honoré, a rich equipage stopped suddenly before him, and a young and elegant woman called from it to him. Monsieur, monsieur, said she, at the same time, on a given signal, the footman leaped down, opened the carriage door, and invited Frederick to enter. He did so, though with some hesitation and surprise, and the carriage started off at full speed. I have received your note, sir, said the lady to Monsieur de la Tour, in a very soft and sweet voice. In spite of your refusal, I hope yet to see you tomorrow evening at my party. To see me, madame? cried Frederic. Yes, sir, you. Ah, a thousand pardons, continued she with an air of confusion. I see my mistake. Forgive me, sir, you are so like a particular friend of mine. What can you think of me? Yet the resemblance is so striking that it would have deceived anyone. Of course, Frederick replied politely to these apologies. 
just as they were terminated, the carriage stopped at the door of a splendid mansion, and the young man could do no less than offer his arm to Lady Melton, as the fair stranger announced herself to be. Her extreme beauty charmed Monsieur de la Tour, and he congratulated himself upon this happy accident which had gained him such an acquaintance. Lady Melton loaded him with civilities, and he received and accepted an invitation for the party spoken of. Invitations to other parties followed, and to be brief, the young man soon found himself an established visitant at the house of Lady Melton. She, a rich and youthful widow, was encircled by many admirers. One by one, however, disappeared, giving way to the poor clerk, who seemed to engross the lady's thoughts. Finally, almost by her own asking, they were betrothed. Frederic used to look sometimes at the little glass which hung in his humble lodging and wonder to what circumstance he owned his happy fortune. He was not ill-looking, certainly, but he had not vanity to think his appearance magnificent, and his plain and scanty wardrobe prevented him from giving the credit to his tailor. He used to conclude his meditations by the reflection that, assuredly, the lovely widow was fulfilling some unavoidable award of destiny. As for his own feeling, the lady was lovely, young, rich, accomplished, and noted for her sensibility and virtue. Could he hesitate? My dear Frederic, said the lady smilingly, sit down beside me and let me say something to you. The young husband obeyed, but still did not quit her hand. She began, once on a time, Frederic started and half seriously exclaimed, Heavens, it is a fairy tale. Listen to me, foolish boy, resumed the lady. There was once a young girl, the daughter of parents well-born, and at one time rich, but who had declined sadly in circumstances. Until her fifteenth year, the family lived in Lyons, depending entirely for subsistence upon the labor of her father. Some better hopes sprang up and induced them to come to Paris, but it is difficult to stop in the descent down the path of misfortune. For three years the father struggled against poverty, but at last died in a hospital. The mother soon followed, and the young girl was left alone, the occupant of a garret of which the rent was not paid. If there was any fairy connected with this story, this was the moment for her appearance, but none came. The young girl remained alone, without friends or protectors, harassed by debts which she could not pay, and seeking in vain for some species of employment. She found none. Still it was necessary for her to have food. 
The night that followed was sleepless. Next day she was again without food, and the poor girl was forced into the resolution of begging. She covered her face with her mother's veil, the only heritage she had received, and stooping so as to imitate age, she went out into the streets. When there, she held out her hand. Alas, that hand was white and youthful and delicate. She felt the necessity of covering it up in the folds of the wheel, as if it had been leprosite. Thus concealed, the poor girl held out the hand to a young woman who passed, one more happy than herself, and asked, A sou, a single sou, to get bread. The petition was unheeded. An old man passed. The mendicant thought that experience of the distresses of life might have softened one like him, but she was in error. Experience had only hardened, not softened his heart. The night was cold and rainy, and the hour had come when the police appeared to keep the streets clear of mendicants and suspicious characters. At this period, the shrinking girl took courage once more to hold out her hand to a passerby. It was a young man. He stopped at the silent appeal and, diving into his pockets, pulled out a piece of money, which he threw to her, being apparently afraid to touch a thing so miserable. Just as he did this, one of the police came to the spot and, placing his hand on the girl's shoulder, exclaimed, Ah, I have caught you, have I? You are begging. To the office with you. Come along. The young man here interposed. He took hold hastily of the mendicant, whom he had before seemed afraid to touch, and addressing himself to the policeman, said reprovingly, This woman is not a beggar. No, she is, she is one whom I know. But sir, said the officer, I tell you, she is an acquaintance of mine, said the young stranger. Then, turning to the girl, whom he took for an old woman, he continued, Come along, my good dame, and permit me to see you safely to the end of the street. Giving his arm to the unfortunate girl, he led her away, saying, Here is a piece of a hundred sous. It is all I have. Take it, poor woman. The crown of a hundred sous passed from your hand into mine, continued the lady, and as you walked along, supporting my steps, I then, through my veil, distinctly saw your face and figure. My figure, said Frederick in amazement. Yes, my friend, your figure, returned his wife. It was to me you gave alms on that night. It was my life, my honor perhaps, that you then saved. You, a mendicant, you, so young, so beautiful, and now so rich, cried Frederick. Yes, my dearest husband, replied the lady. I have in my life received alms once only, and from you.
and those arms have decided my fate for life. On the day following that miserable night, an old woman, in whom I had inspired some sentiments of pity, enabled me to enter into the family of an English gentleman, a bachelor, who was then with his two sisters residing in Paris. She gave me a letter of presentation and recommendation. I felt very thankful for this. I hastily prepared myself in my best apparel, adapting it as near as possible in such a manner as seemed least like the fashion of the city, and departed for the residence of Sir James Melton. With a beating heart did I approach the door. I knocked. It seemed not half as hard as the throbbing in my bosom. The door was opened by an elderly woman, the housekeeper. Why I was not frightened from my purpose I cannot tell, for a more forbidding and severe face I never saw. Perhaps I trembled at the misery of the past. I stated my object, showed my letter, and the woman looked more cross, and I felt more miserable. She told me that the ladies were out, that there was no one at home but Sir James. I could see him, but she thought there could scarce be any need of me, and I must have been mistaken. I felt sick at heart. I thought of my dead parents and envied them. Discouraged by this repulse, I turned to depart when I heard within the sound of a gentleman's voice. The few first words I could not understand, but he ended by ordering the cross old housekeeper to show me in. I entered his room. The first sight of him gave me hope. He spoke and his kind tones assured me. He was sitting at a table in his morning gown, engaged in writing. He inquired my business, and I handed to him the letter, which he opened and read. Then, asking me a few questions, he remarked that his sisters were both out, but that I had better wait for their return. In the meantime, the old lady seemed no well-pleased witness of the scene, standing with her hands upon the back of Sir James' chair. I had not waited more than half an hour before the ladies returned. Sir James made known to them the object of my call, which ended in my being engaged. Cheerfulness returned to me with labor. I had the good fortune to become a favorite, and indeed I did my best to merit it. One day, when I had been in the family about six months, Sir James asked me to give him my history. I did so, and he seemed much struck with it. The result was that he sat down by my side one day and asked me plainly if I would marry him. Marry you? cried I in surprise. Sir James Melton was a man of sixty. In answer to my exclamation of astonishment, he said, Yes, I ask 
if you will be my wife. I am rich, but have no comfort, no happiness. My relatives seem to yearn to see me in the grave. I have ailments which require a deep degree of kindly care, but that is not to be bought from servants. I have heard your story and believe you to be one who will support prosperity as well as you have done adversity. I make my proposal sincerely and I hope you may agree to it. At that time, Frederic continued the lady, I loved you. I had seen you but once, but the occasion was too memorable for me ever to forget it, and something always insinuated to me that we were to pass through life together. Yet everyone around me pressed me to accept the offer made to me, and the thought struck me that I might one day make you wealthy. At length, my only objection to Sir James Malton's proposal lay in a disinclination to make myself the instrument of vengeance in Sir James's hands against the relatives whom he might dislike without good grounds. The objection, when stated, only increased his anxiety for my consent, and finding it would be carrying Romans the length of folly to reject the advantageous settlement offered to me, I consented to Sir James's proposal. This part of my story, Frederick, is like a fairy tale. I, the poor orphan, penniless and friendless, became the wife of one of the richest baronets of England. Dressed in silks and sparkling with jewels, I could now pass in my carriage through the streets where a few months before I had stood in the rain and darkness, a mendicant. Happy Sir James, cried Monsieur de la Tour at this part of the story. He could prove his love by enriching you. He was happy, resumed the lady. Our marriage, so strangely assorted, proved much more conducive, it is probable, to his comfort than if he had wedded one with whom all the parrots of settlements and pin money would have been necessary. Never, I believe, did he for an instant repent of our union. I, on my part, conceived myself bound to do my best for the solace of his declining years, and he, on his part, thought it incumbent on him to provide for my future welfare. He died, leaving me a large part of his substance, as much indeed as I could prevail upon myself to accept. I was a widow, and from the hour in which I became so, I would never again consent to give my hand to a man except to him who had succored me in my hour of distress and whose remembrance had ever been preserved in the recesses of my heart. But how to discover that man? Ah, unconscious Ingrid, to make no endeavor to come in the way of one who sought to love, to cherish you, 
In vain I looked for you at balls, assemblies and theatres. You went not there. As the lady spoke, she took from her neck a ribbon to which was attached a piece of a hundred sous. It is the same, the very same which you gave me, said she, presenting it to Frederic. By pledging it, I got credit from a neighbor for a little bread, and I earned enough afterwards in time to permit me to redeem it. I vowed never to part with it. Ah, how happy I was, Frederic, when I saw you in the street. The excuse which I made for stopping you was the first which arose to my mind. But what terrors I felt even afterwards, lest you should have been already married. In that case, you would never have heard aught of this fairy tale, though I would have taken some means or others to serve and enrich you. I would have gone to England, and there passed my days, in regret perhaps, but still in peace. But happily, it was to be otherwise. You were single. Frederic de Latour was now awakened, as it were to the full certainty of his happiness. What he could not but before look upon as a sort of freak of fancy in a young and wealthy woman was now proved to be the result of deep, kindly feeling most honorable to her who entertained it. The heart of the young husband overflowed with gratitude and affection to the lovely and noble-hearted being who had given herself to him. He was too happy to speak. His wife first broke silence. So, Frederic, said she gaily, you see that if I am a fairy, it is you that have given me the wand, the talisman that has affected all. End of section one.